So in the last couple of talks that I've given here, I was invited to revisit the core teachings of the Buddha to start exploring, or perhaps re-exploring, the path of transformation that he laid out in terms of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is really the heart, the core of his teaching. And it's what all of us here are following to some extent, whether we're consciously aware of it or not. And one of my intentions in giving this brief overview of the path is to try to show that it's not just a numbered list of abstract nouns, but a framework that helps to bring the teachings alive in everything we do, so that every aspect of our lives becomes a vehicle for transformation, leading us to increasing happiness, ease, peace and freedom. So last time I spoke here, or a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that these eight path factors are often grouped into three sets, and they're seen as being like three legs of a tripod that need to be equally well-developed if we're going to get the most benefit from our practice. And back then I invited you to see how much you could remember about what these three sets are and which factors belong to which so I thought just to try that again to see how much has stuck or not, because the more we can have this framework internalized in our minds, the easier it is to notice which of these factors might need more attention and when. So anybody remember what the first of the three groupings is Yes, that is the first one, Panya or Wisdom, thank you. Right view, yes, and the intention, yeah, mindfulness comes a bit later. So Wisdom group is right or wise view and right or wise intention. So the second grouping Sila or ethics, thank you. And those three factors are speech, thank you. So one of the things I find with this li with these lists, uh, whether it's the awakening factors or the eightfold path or the parami is the one that I can't remember is often the one that needs the most work. So I'm not pointing fingers or anything, but it's just curious to notice which ones do we forget and when. So yes, yes, they all need work. But ethics group is right or wise speech, right or wise action, right or wise livelihood. And that leaves the last group, which is... Yeah, samadhi or meditation, and that includes which three? Uh, no, actually. Yes, effort. Someone mentioned it before. Yes, mindfulness, thank you. And yeah, samadhi, concentration, unification of mind. 
Pretty good, thank you. So last time I was here, I went into the wisdom group in a bit more detail. So tonight I'd like to focus more on the ethics or the sila group, which perhaps of the three groups is the one that is given the least attention. And yet it's also the area where most of us spend most of our time. Because if you think of the proportion of the day that you spend in formal meditation relative to the proportion of the day you spend doing everything else, I'm guessing the the waiting is much more to everything else. So these three, right or wise speech, right or wise action, right or wise livelihood, I also think of more broadly as the relational aspects of the path because they're about how we show up in the world, what we say, what we do, how we engage with our work lives, our livelihood more generally. So this evening I'd like to focus mostly just on that last factor of right or wise livelihood. Because in some ways the other two, wise action and wise speech, are relatively straightforward. So just for context, right action is about avoiding behavior that causes harm. Specifically in terms of not killing, not stealing and not misusing our sexual energy. So these three align with the first of the five ethical training precepts that I think you're all familiar with. Then right speech aligns with the fourth training precept, which is to avoid false speech, namely not lying, but also to refrain from slanderous speech, harsh speech and idle chatter. So those are the most basic definitions of wise action and wise speech. And of course, they're both endlessly refinable. And if we had more time in this series, we could go into them in more detail. But tonight I wanted to focus mostly on right or wise livelihood because of these three, it's probably the one that's paid the least attention to. And yet it's the one, as I said, that we spend most of our time involved in. And just to say up front that livelihood here is not just about making money. It's about how we live our lives more generally. So whether we're in the paid workforce, whether we're a student or a volunteer, whether we're retired or a stay-at-home parent, a caregiver, these are all aspects of livelihood. And because most of us do spend most of our time engaged in this aspect of our lives, if we can bring the teachings to bear on our livelihood, it offers a powerful opportunity to deepen the practice. So I've spoken before about how the Dharma, the teachings came to the West in a way that's perhaps been a little biased. So historically there's been a tendency to privilege meditation as being the real practice, and to quietly ignore all the other path factors that in fact support that very capacity to meditate. And I want to reinforce that point because I think these days most people have some understanding or hope that they're meditating in order to change or improve their lives but they're much less clear that they also need to change or improve their lives 
in order to meditate well. And particularly as mindfulness becomes more and more mainstream, it sometimes seems to me that it's presented as if, well, if I just sprinkle a bit of mindfulness here and there, almost like fairy dust, then I'll feel better. But if we're living insanely busy lives, caught up in all kinds of stresses and challenges, and then as a consequence, maybe doing unskillful things to try and relieve all of that pressure, then when we sit down to meditate, that craziness is not going to just magically disappear. In fact, it might even feel more acute. Because when we take a few minutes to stop and actually feel the impact of what we're doing to ourselves, it can be pretty unpleasant. And I think this is one reason many people in the beginning find it difficult to maintain a regular meditation practice. It's uncomfortable to have to sit with the effects of the hyper-busyness, the stress, the anxiety, and so on, that often our lives are engendering. And try as we might, we can't actually compartmentalize our meditation practice from the rest of our lives. We can't just sit down on the cushion and flick a switch and have all of that stress and agitation just disappear. Because our meditation practice doesn't happen in a vacuum. And this is why the Noble Eightfold Path includes eight factors. And three of them are about meditation. The other five are about other aspects of our life. So it's a very holistic path. And it invites us to contemplate every aspect of our lives. To see whether we are living in a way that's conducive to the development of wisdom and compassion, or not. So, keeping in mind that the Noble Eightfold Path is a training, and it's one that's developed right here in our everyday lives. And the Buddha makes this very clear by including right livelihood as a path factor. And one of my teachers, uh, Gil Fransdell, has written a whole series of articles on the Noble Eightfold Path that have been very useful in putting these talks together. So if you're interested, you can find them on the Insight Meditation Center website. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but there's a lot of very useful resources there. And in relation to wise livelihood, Gil points out that in general, the things we do repeatedly have much greater consequence than the things we do only once or a few times. And the effects ripple further out into our society and deeper into our hearts. So in terms of the actual definition of right livelihood, in the suttas, for lay people, it's defined quite minimally and it just mentions five particular businesses or trades that should be avoided. A lay follower should not engage in business in weapons, business in human beings, business in meat, business in intoxicants, and business in poison. That's the most basic definition of types of business or trade which cause harm on a pretty gross level. Basically, dealing in arms, slavery, butchery, 
alcohol and drugs poisons. Now, obviously, these are instructions coming from the context of Indian society 2,600 years ago. So on one level, they might not seem that relevant. I'm guessing, well, I'm, yes, I am assuming that most people here are not directly involved in arms dealing or slave trading or even butchery. Selling alcohol, possibly. I was a bar tender when I was a student. So I do have first-hand experience of some of the damage of intoxicants. And then the last one, selling poison. Again, probably most of us not involved in that. But again, it depends how you define poison. Many forms of media and entertainment are actually quite toxic to our hearts and minds. Perhaps even the advertising industry as a whole based as it is in cultivating a sense of lack and discontent. So I'll come back to some of those maybe more nuanced aspects of right livelihood in a moment. For now, just to say that they're grounded in that overall commitment to ethical conduct, to non-harming. So they overlap with wise action and also with wise speech. Because the next level of wise livelihood is to avoid any form of dishonesty. So paying attention to the way that we do business, not only the business itself. So in the Majjhima Nikaya it says, one discerns wrong livelihood as wrong livelihood and right livelihood as right livelihood. This is one's right view. And what is wrong livelihood? Scheming, persuading, hinting, belittling, and pursuing gain with gain. This is wrong livelihood. So then with this principle of non-harming, we should acquire our livelihood peacefully, without coercion or violence, honestly, not by trickery or deceit, in ways that do not entail harm and suffering for others. So when the Buddha teaches about wealth, I think it's worth highlighting that he did not advocate poverty as a virtue. He recognized the suffering that comes from not being able to take care of one's basic needs. So he had no issue with people acquiring wealth as long as it was done in ways that didn't create harm and as long as the wealth was used wisely or skillfully. So a householder, knowing his or her income and expenses, leads a balanced life, neither extravagant nor miserly, knowing that their income will stand in excess of their expenses, but not the other way round. So the emphasis here is, as with all the Buddha's teachings, finding that balance, the middle way between not living extravagantly nor miserly, not stingily. So right livelihood also includes not just how we make a living, but more broadly, our attitude to our wealth, our generosity or our stinginess. And so again, according to Gill, right livelihood more literally includes every aspect of how we live our lives. He says, 
Right livelihood is the most common English translation of the Buddhist term Samma Ajiva. However, because Ajiva means the way one lives, it encompasses more than one's job or occupation. It includes such lifestyle choices as what we buy, consume, use for housing and rely on for financial support. It also includes how we parent, care for our family or live in retirement. When walking the Eightfold Path, the question regarding right livelihood is whether or not the way we live moves us towards more compassion, peace and freedom. Is it nourishing? Does it support the development of ease and insight? Does it help us become a better, happier person? Does it help others? So if we start to explore our livelihood, our way of life in terms of these criteria, there are a lot more nuances and subtleties to it, and also complications, challenges and conflicting values. We live in a capitalist society, a very different context from the Buddha's time. But even back then, the Buddha acknowledged that those who were following his teachings were swimming upstream because many of the values that his teachings promote, such as generosity, kindness, compassion, renunciation, patience, and so on, are not the values of mainstream society. So inevitably, as we try to navigate the world in ways that are in alignment with our values, we're likely to run into challenges. And yet by highlighting right livelihood as one of the eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, the Buddha is very directly asking us to examine how we live our lives. It's not enough to meditate on a regular basis perhaps go on retreat every so often, and then just live the rest of our lives sort of business as usual. We really are being asked to integrate every aspect of how we live into this path. So to go into this in a bit more depth now, I'd like to just uh, offer an approach that Gil Fronstel uh, shares in this Noble Eightfold Path articles. And he situates right livelihood in the context of our capitalist society, suggesting that we look at it in terms of two modes, the mode of production and the mode of consumption. So he says the primary activities we engage in to sustain our life are what constitute livelihood. These can be grouped into two categories, what we produce and what we consume. Production refers to what we create or engage in that provides us with the financial and material support for our life. Consumption pertains to what we buy and use in order to sustain our life and our lifestyle. So again, in terms of what we can consider, are we, what we're engaging with, what we're creating, is it? supporting living in alignment with our deepest values or not. And again, it can be quite uncomfortable because 
in a capitalist society, we do need jobs, which ties into our basic survival. And sometimes the ethics of the company we work for or the behavior of our colleagues is not in alignment with our values. And this creates suffering. And living out of alignment with one's values is a particular form of suffering that's pervasive, chronic, and energy-sapping. And at the same time, many of us have experienced quite a bit of internal and external pressure to stick with the status quo, to not do things differently. So I'm talking a little bit from my own experience now. Of um, Before I got involved more fully with the Dharma, I used to think that peer group pressure was something that only happened in high school and that once you became an adult, you would be immune to it. But when I was first moving out of my professional career and I took up a full-time Dharma service position at the Blue Mountains Insight Meditation Center uh, just outside of Katoomba. And when I first moved into that position, I got all kinds of subtle and not-so-subtle messages about the foolishness of what I was doing. So I went from earning a professional salary to having a small weekly stipend. And when friends and family and even some of the meditators at the center heard about this, their responses were not always that encouraging. So one person said, you know, I don't mean to be rude, but you're no spring chicken. What are you going to do about your retirement? I was 36 years old at that point. (laughs) Another person said, I had a root canal last week. What would you do if you needed a root canal? That cost me $3,000. How are you going to afford that on your stipend? And I would hear these kind of messages surprisingly often. And at first it was quite confronting until I eventually realized that all of these comments and questions were actually rooted in the other person's anxiety. And eventually I learned to meet them more with compassion and not to buy into them. So in sharing that example, I'm not implying that wise livelihood means we're all supposed to give up our jobs and live in meditation centers or monasteries. I'm just highlighting some of the challenges that can come when we do try to live outside of mainstream values. And you can probably all give me examples of this in your own lives. And that's one reason why we need the support of Sangha of other like-minded people to give us moral support at times when we need to make difficult decisions. So coming back to Gill's writing, here are some of the questions he invites us to reflect on in relation to what we produce. He says, What work or activities do you engage in that provide you with financial and material support? If you are employed, what do you produce? If you are a homemaker, what are you making? If you are retired with investments, in what have you invested? If you are a student, are your studies directed towards being able to do something that will provide you with a livelihood? And if so, what is this? What's your relationship to what you produce? 
What attitudes do you have towards your work? Does it inspire you? If so, how? Is it meaningful? If so, how? Does it help you become a better person? Does it benefit others? Can you think of ways you benefit yourself and others through your work that you might be overlooking? What values do you express through the work you do? And what values do you wish were better expressed at work? So that's the production side of wise livelihood and perhaps we can come back to some of those questions after this talk to maybe reflect on together. But first I'd like to take a quick look at the consumption side of wise livelihood which asks us to consider what we consume, we use, buy or spend our time doing in order to meet our basic needs and sustain our lifestyle. And again, it opens up a whole range of questions, which again, at times might feel quite uncomfortable and might not have easy answers. So what do you consume, use, buy or spend your time doing in order to meet your basic needs and sustain your lifestyle? What motivates the choices you make in what you consume? How are you affected by what you consume? What values are expressed in these choices? What values do you wish were more a part of these choices? Does what you consume make you a better person? Does it benefit others in any direct or indirect way? So you might have noticed that Gill implies a distinction between making our basic needs, sorry, meeting our basic needs and our lifestyle. And most of us live in a fairly affluent society. And even if we ourselves are not affluent, we're still bombarded every day by messages that are designed to hook us into wanting more and more stuff. And it can take a surprising amount of effort to resist all these attempts to trigger our sense of lack and discontent. So it's important not to blame ourselves if we do get caught up in rampant consumerism at times. Because the advertising industry and the media are extremely sophisticated businesses and they spend billions of dollars to understand exactly how to manipulate us into buying their products. So a few years ago, I watched a fascinating and pretty disturbing documentary series from the BBC called The Century of the Self. I don't know if any of you know that. But it described how, until relatively recently, basically the start of the last century, people generally didn't have any sense of the need to be individuals. They didn't feel the need to express themselves or to stand out from the crowd in any way. And this was reflected in the way they spent their money. For the most part, it was on an as-needs basis. So, for example, shoes. They bought a pair of shoes, they wore them until they were no longer repairable, and then they bought another pair, usually pretty much the same style or type as the previous one. 
But in the early 20th century, a nephew of Sigmund Freud's named Edward Bernays started to use his uncle's ideas about the unconscious to find ways to manipulate people's behavior. And this man, Edward Bernays, is credited with almost single-handedly starting the public relations and marketing industries. So he started deliberately using the influential people of his day, film stars and aristocrats and so on, to tell people, and particularly women, that they should care more about their individuality. They should use their appearance and what they wore to express themselves. And all of this was in the service of selling more shoes, handbags, scarves, hats, and so on. And what I found particularly painful was that one of the examples they gave was that the uh, Tobacco Manufacturing Association went to him and said, we've maxed out our market. Every adult male smokes, but women don't. Can you help us get women to smoke? Because there was a taboo against women smoking. So he developed, uh, they had cocktail cigarettes, you know, those colored ones. And at some fancy event, he had all these upcoming starlets go around and hand out these cigarettes to young women. And it was promoted in the magazines of the day of these daring young women expressing their individuality. And he basically broke that taboo against women smoking. And within a few years, women were smoking almost at the same rate as men. So, you know, these... This manipulation is so destructive. And I find it fascinating that this sense of needing to be an individual is something that is not inherent to being human. It was, according to this documentary, deliberately manufactured as a marketing strategy to make money. And in the subsequent decades, the cult of individuality grew and grew, fueled by consumerism. And these days, the drive to be special is even more rampant. So technology has created this whole category of so-called influences. And young people especially are pressured to be constantly posing and preening and presenting themselves to their peers as popular and successful and special. And I don't have to tell you probably the downside of all that is a huge surge in mental health issues. So a recent National Health Survey in the UK found that of women aged between 16 and 24, 12.6% of them screened positive for PTSD, trauma, 19.7% for self-harm, and 28.2% had other mental health conditions such as anxiety, depression, panic disorder, phobia, obsessive-compulsive disorders, and so on. And one theory uh, that about why this generation has such poor mental health is that it's a generation that has grown up completely immersed in social media with all the toxicity that that often brings. So even as adults, we're not immune from that same pressure of constantly having to be someone. And as one possible strategy to counter this, we might at times limit our exposure to advertising, media, entertainment. 
So I think I may have shared on previous talks how these days, uh, in terms of the precepts, some teachers see technology as an intoxicant. And I know for myself that the devices can be pretty addictive. So some of you may know uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese monk's rewriting of these five training precepts. And the last one, in terms of intoxicants, he includes bringing awareness to everything we take into our bodies, our hearts and our minds. Not just obvious intoxicants, such as alcohol and recreational drugs, but media and entertainment. So here are the actual words of how he has framed his precept. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption, I am committed to cultivating good health, both physical and mental, for myself, my family and my society, by practicing mindful eating, drinking and consuming. I will ingest only items that preserve peace, well-being and joy in my body, in my consciousness and in the collective body and consciousness of my family and society. I am determined not to use alcohol or any other intoxicant or to ingest foods or other items that contain toxins, such as certain TV programs, magazines, books, films and conversations. I am aware that to damage my body or my consciousness with these poisons is to betray my ancestors, my parents, my society and future generations. I will work to transform violence, fear, anger and confusion in myself and in society by practicing a diet for myself and for society. I understand that a proper diet is crucial for self-transformation and for the transformation of society. So that's uh, quite an extension of that precept, taking it into every aspect of our lives and exploring it as a form of right livelihood. So there's quite a lot there. I'd like to just close it here and take some time perhaps for us to explore some of these ideas together. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.